Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solvay Virginia University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Whitney pabilski Yanofchek and Sung Wu Kong about their paper, Treatment of Food Selectivity in an Adult with Autism Spectrum Disorder. Whitney is a licensed social worker as well as a board certified behavior analyst with many years experience. Currently, she's a behavior analyst at the Rutgers Center for Adult Autism Services and Sungwoo is the chair of the Department of Applied Psychology, director of academic programs in autism and ABA, and an associate professor at Rutgers University. I was really excited to get the opportunity to talk about adult services for individuals with autism spectrum disorder, so I'm really excited to share with you the interview. Without further ado, here's my interview with Whitney pabilski Yanofchik and Sungwoo Kang. Hello, Whitney and Sungwoo. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm excited to have you both on to talk about your paper, Treatment of Food Selectivity in an Adult with Autism Spectrum Disorder. Before we jump into the contents of the paper and sort of explore that, I always like to learn a little bit about the guests, to hear a little bit about your background and why you're interested in this particular research. So would each of you mind introducing yourselves, talking about maybe what your current role is within behavior analysis, maybe potentially a little bit of your overall interest in behavior analysis, and then why this research in particular, like what drew you to this particular project? Well, good morning. My name is Whitney pabilski Yanovchik. I am a behavior analyst at Rutgers Center for Adult Autism Services in the SCALE program. I've been in the field for about 17 years. I've worked with um, every age group from 18 months through um, people in their mid-60s. So um, the age group that we're working with today is adults uh, 21 and over with a primary diagnosis of autism. I have done food selectivity, uh, worked with food selectivity in the past with children, but never with adults. So, um, you know, having come here about five years ago to, to join this program, it's been an exciting opportunity to be able to work with adults with these kind of long ranging issues, you know, uh, long learning histories of, of engaging in this type of behavior and to be able to come up with something, you know, an, an interesting potential solution for at least one, one of our participants. What drew you to working with sort of older clients, you know, so much of our field focuses on like children, what, how did you get involved or sort of interested in working with adults? I started working with adults about seven years ago in residential facilities um, uh, as a consultant in in New York, mostly in the Bronx. Um, And you can see that, you know, there's a lot of potential for, um, you know, growth. So while it's it's not academic based per se, we're not necessarily teaching people to read and things like that. When you give an adult an opportunity to engage in community-based activities, you really see a lot of growth. Um, and that's really exciting to me to, to be able to be part of that and to be able to see our participants grow um, and be able to be a little bit more independent. That's awesome. Sungwoo, would you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely, thanks, Cody. Uh, so I'm uh, Dr. Sungwoo Kang. I'm a faculty in the Department of Applied Psychology uh, within the Graduate School of Applied and Professional Psychology, or GZAP, at Rutgers. Uh, I, I actually hold like many different roles within Rutgers, um, one of them being the co-director of research for the RCAAS, uh, which is the Adult Autism Center that Whitney works at there. Um, and so, you know, um, I've been in, in the field for quite some time. Uh, a lot of my work is focused on, you know, more ch- uh, challenging behaviors exhibited by individuals with autism. Uh, but when I came to Rutgers uh, a few years ago, um, they had just started uh, this new adult autism support center. 
Uh, and it was a great opportunity for me to make a slight little uh, pivot in terms of my research uh, focus uh, into working uh, to support these adults with autism. That's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, my, my background in behavior analysis uh, was largely started in the adult realm. And so I was working, uh, going to school at Western Michigan University and working with Stephanie Peterson. We were doing a lot of stuff in group homes and day programs. And so the, I feel like the adult services aspect of our field, very small. So I always feel a kinship with, with folks who also work with, with adults. It's a very particular task and it's, you guys, its own very particular challenges. And, and so I just love seeing research on the topic and, and getting to talk with folks who, who do this type of work. So I'm really excited about this particular project. Did this project, before we sort of get into the, the nitty gritties, did this project just come up it, sort of as a natural issue that maybe one of your clients, is, clients were experiencing within your center and it's like, hey, let's focus on this? Or were you looking to get into the food selectivity uh, arena or, or with adults uh, with food selectivity specifically? Like, how did this come about? Um, so this young man, we had known him for about a year. He'd been in the program with us. Um, and one of our more health conscious uh, support people had noticed that he had this really limited repertoire of foods that he would eat. Um, and he kind of bemoaned the fact that like, this isn't going to be good for his long-term health. And so that kind of spurred the idea of like, well, we have a science, like, why don't we just try to tackle this? Um, and so when I approached his parents and said, hey, you know, would you mind if we targeted this as something, an area of improvement for him? Um, they kind of just gave us like, well, good luck. It's not going to work, <laughs> which is probably where most pe- you know pe- parents and, and support providers land on this type of thing, because it's such a, you know, he had been eating the same foods for over 24 years when we met him. So, you know, it was, it was really kind of like, well, this is our best shot at, at getting this done. Um, and so it was really exciting to, to tackle. That's awesome. You saw a meaningful, a meaningful opportunity or an opportunity to help someone with a meaningful behavior, right. And in, in this food selectivity. So in your paper, you start off talking about sort of the prevalence of feeding disorders within the within the, the scope of ASD, which is which is like a huge huge prevalence, like estimates around eighty nine percent. And then with food selectivity in particular as one type of feeding disorder, again estimates in and around like eighty five percent of individuals with ASD. We've talked about food selectivity in this client having it. Could you explain exactly what food selectivity is and, and why the sort of health conscious folks that you were working with are like, this can be an issue for this individual? Um, so basically um, what he presented with was that he would eat a limited uh, number of foods. So it was um, all highly processed foods like um, chicken fingers, hamburgers, um, goldfish, Oreo cookies, things like that. So no whole fruits and vegetables, um, you know, so worries about his cholesterol over time, his weight. Um, he doesn't over, he never over ate the amount of food, you know, it wasn't like he was eating five hamburgers or something like that, but um, the types of food that he was eating were just very limited to, you know, we're in New Jersey, so pork roll, um, hot dogs, hamburgers, things like that. So, um, and it really impacted, to be honest, his his family life, right? So um, for any holiday, they would have to stop at Burger King on their way to go have something for him to have with that family meal. So that was a thing that I kind of said, you know, like if we can change that and and they don't have to make these extra stops and and change their life for him um, and they can just kind of share a meal together, whether it be a a big family meal um, that's special or just a day-to-day thing, um, that would just be really awesome for them. You know, and just to add to what Whitney was saying, I guess just from a broader perspective in terms of the research on feeding disorders, you know, if you know, there's uh, behavioral analysts do an amazing job of, um, you know, I guess disseminating the research on feeding disorders, but it's done, the research is done primarily with younger children. Uh, and so we, I think one of the things we noticed is that there was this gap in, you know, like uh, the research on adults uh, who also have these, uh, you know, who are very food selective, right? You know, as Whitney mentioned, you know, like they're seeing in clinical practice, but we're not necessarily seeing that in the research uh, to support uh, the, the, the treatment, you know, for adults with this. 
Um, and I think you know the really interesting you know comment that Whitney had made earlier is that you know the mother was you know like basically wished her good luck. Uh, really, like was an indication of you know she was very doubtful that anything could actually be done. Um, and in all likelihood, that was probably because of you know the, the long history that the mother had in in you know not being successful in getting her son to, to eating a, a larger variety of food so he could participate in you know like family meals for example there and and, and i i do wonder if that's just kind of like the prevailing assumption within the field is that you know by the time they're 21 22 23 if they've had this long history of not um, receiving any type of treat not being successful uh, with you know, um, like increasing the, the diversity of foods they're eating that it's too late um, at, you know, by the time they're adults. That makes sense. And that, in, in some ways, is consistent with my experience in working with adults where a lot of potentially long-term problematic behaviors are just sort of accepted as, yeah, this, they've been doing this for 20 years. Like, we're not really interfering with this. And I like the points that Wendy was making about, you know, there are a lot of important aspects of someone's life that having food selectivity can affect, whether that be sort of their social relationships and being able to sort of join a meal with their family, but also the long-term health impact, right? Like if you think about like food selectivity versus food refusal, food refusal is like an obvious jump out. This is a problem, right? This person isn't consuming calories. That's potentially immediately life-threatening or you know harmful for their health food selectivity, you go, well, they're eating, you know, they're fine. There's not, they're not going to pass out from, you know, malnutrition this week. Sure. But in 30 years after only eating hamburgers and chicken nuggets, you know, it's probably not going to, to affect them in a great way. And you're going to probably see some long-term complications, which is going to make, you know, their later life much more complicated. So really, really, meaningful, important topic. And I appreciate the point of saying a lot of work has been done on this, but it's essentially mostly been done entirely with children. Looking at it with adults sort of separately or sort of informing what we're doing with adults based off of children is helpful. Why is there a need to do like a, a separate study with adults or a study with adults? Is it because there's like sort of nuances in the realm of serving adults that, that may not be prevalent with children? Like, why is it valuable to show that these, these strategies are, are, are also effective with adults? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, that's actually a question that, that I asked. Like, um, so before I started, you know, spending a lot of time with adults, you know, kind of, you know, working both like clinically and, and doing the clinical research with the adults, you know, I, I guess I was always in an assumption that behavior is behavior um, and what works for kids, you know, we know, you know, should work for you know, uh, adults as well. And so is it really necessary to spend additional time kind of, you know, separating out these groups between you know, children, uh, research with children with autism versus research with adults with autism? Uh, but I think, you know, what I've learned, you know, with Whitney and the other folks um, at the RCAS um, is that, yes, there really is a difference, right? So, you know, obviously, um, you've got issues like, you know, difference in physical size. Uh, so if you look at, you know, uh, challenging behavior research, you know, um, like working with a child, like a younger child who's physically smaller than an adult who's physically larger is very, very different and different um, accommodations need to be made. Uh, we're looking in, uh, with this particular individual who is very food selective. You know, I think the you know, the real important difference between the, the ch child-based research versus the adult-based research is that long history that he's had. You know, he had he's had 20 plus years of being very very food selective, um, which makes it you know um, you know much more resistant, which we would assume would make uh, much more resistant to treatment than you know like uh, working with a two, three, four-year-old uh, child um, you know who's very very food selective there. I mean, I think there are you know, like other areas of differences, um, you know, between adults and children. You know, obviously, um, developmentally, there are lots of differences. Um, I think, you know, just in terms of you know ethical issues, we had there were different uh, different issues as well. Um, you know, for example, in in this particular study, we you know, mentioned um, I mean, one of the limitations is you know we never check for food packing, and and I will we'll go into the de details later. Uh, but you know that's because you know like we felt it very odd. You know, prompt, uh, if we were to prompt him to open his mouth to show us um, that his um, you know, uh, mouth was clean, 
right? So that, that's another very subtle difference. Whereas you know, that's a very common procedure for children, like younger children. Um, it's probably, it, it, it felt, it struck us as being a little odd or, or you know, unnecessary for adults there. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating and, and a really important point, right? That sometimes some of the things we do with children appropriately, you know, with an adult could be patronizing or not necessarily respecting their dignity as an adult, you know? So yeah, important distinctions there. So we sort of talked uh, a little bit around the client mentioning that it was an adult with, with autism spectrum disorder. Could we, could we talk uh, sort of in detail about the participant? Would you mind describing him so that uh, the listeners can get a sense of, of who the study was really conducted with here? Um, so he is an adult participant in our program and our primary focus is work. So he works a couple different jobs uh, on campus. Um, during the year when the semester is in full swing, he's in the dining hall and in the spring, summer and a little bit of the fall this year, he's uh, working at the golf course. So we've done lots and lots of work with him to get him as independent as possible. So um, he's currently coming into town from his, uh, his parents home uh, using public transportation. So we taught all that stuff up. Uh, he gets into work independently. We do check ins with him to make sure he has what he needs. Um, we also had to work on and getting him to turn on his cell phone. So like these were things that we worked on prior to doing this, but um, pretty rigid um, individual in, in the sense of like trying to change anything about um, his schedule, the things that he does is not an easy task. So um, pretty inflexible just overall, um, but highly vocal. You can have a conversation with him. Um, trying to think what else. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he wants to be independent, um, things like that. So he's currently working, he's you know making minimum wage doing these jobs that he has, um, but he's pretty independent overall in terms of, of being able to get to and from places and being able to work. Awesome. In the paper, you specified that he did not have a history with difficulties in chewing or swallowing. Why is that important to specify for, for this client, given the interventions that you're looking at here? To be perfectly honest with you, I was a little bit nervous. Um, <laughs> I'm a mom. And so, you know, grapes are like the devil, right? So, um, so I was initially cutting the grapes in half, right? So, so to get this guy to eat a couple of grapes in a day wasn't really functional, but I didn't know whether or not he could move things in his mouth or um, different textures and things like that. So it was, I was quite honestly a little bit nervous, um, but it was important for us to get that information from mom and dad, like he can chew, he can swallow, all those things um, to make sure that we weren't entering into something that was going to be ultimately dangerous for him. Um, I know it, it may seem a little over the top, but it was important to me to make sure that he was going to be safe while we, while we worked on this stuff. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's over the top at all. And I, when I was reading it, I was like, "Oh, this is awesome that they mentioned this." And I and I bring it up because I hope it's something the readers and the listeners attend to, because you know, if we're looking at even a relatively innocuous feeding issue like food selectivity, again, where there's not an immediate health concern, if you don't make sure that they have the capacity to consume the foods you're going to be trying to encourage them to eat, it could turn into an immediately health-threatening situation, right, where we have risk of choking and things like that. And I've seen situations, not from behavior analysts, but in uh, group homes for adults where they were, like, really pushing the client to eat faster and faster and faster, and they weren't, they clearly weren't chewing and swallowing appropriately, and they're putting that client in, in tremendous danger. And so, you know, simple little prerequisite skills that I think can easily be overlooked in some situation, but they're absolutely essential if you're going to be doing this type of work. Yeah. And I think the other thing to point out is that the RCAS, it, it, it's a true community-based program. So it's not like a specialized hospital, not a specialized clinic. It is a community-based program that's integrated within the Rutgers uh, campus there, um, which that means that there's no on-site medical team. There's no nurses, there's no you know GI. So um, 
it's there's not easy access to let's say uh, like GI physicians who you know, can do swallow uh, studies to make sure things are safe. Um, obviously, um, you know Whitney and her team consulted with with the parents to make sure uh, that there are no medical issues uh, you know, related to this particular participant. Uh, but you know obviously you know, like all safety precautions that, that could be made in that community based setting you know were were taken. Makes sense. To, to set up the study or to sort of begin the process of the study, you had to narrow in a, a, an idea of foods that may be important or, or socially valid to target in the intervention. Could you talk about what food items you ended up selecting and why? It was pretty simple. Um, so I, I kind of asked mom and dad, like, what do you have around the house? What do you guys typically eat? Um, and what would you have available so that maybe they, they could also model eating those same foods and things like that to kind of promote generalization. But it was just a list of foods that, that mom and dad had come up with that they thought um, would be meaningful to him. And, and what were the, the food items that you ended up settling on? Uh, we did grapes, carrots, red bell peppers, um, and ultimately salad, because some of the family members ate salad. Nice, and, and that makes sense from a, you know, getting closer to a balanced diet perspective to sort of offset some of that, those chicken nuggets to get into some vegetables and some, some healthier foods. To, before you even ran baseline, you did a uh, baseline probes where you offered uh, apples and grapes. Why, why did you do those even, even prior to your baseline? Um, we knew uh, just from observation that he really enjoyed some um, foods like croissants and things like that. Um, so we figured why not try the, the least, the path of least resistance and see if we can offer him to take a bite of this and I'll give you this. Um, and it didn't work at all. Um, not surprisingly, <laughs> got a little annoyed with us, to be honest with you. Um, but that was, that was what the probes looked like. It was just very simple. Hey, you're right before eating lunch, have one of these and I'll give you this. Um, that was it. Yeah, that makes sense. Just a very simple intervention. Hey, if I can get a sort of one-to-one -one ratio here, would you be up for it? And to, before you sort of roll out a little bit more of a complicated approach or involved approach, I should say. With, with, the, with the items you ended up targeting, what were the specific goals for each? And I guess I want to say specific, I don't mean you have to tell me like it was, you know, exactly 13 and a half grapes or whatever it was, but like, what were your parameters or the things you were thinking about when you're going like, we want to see him consuming an appropriate amount of those items? Like, how do you determine that? So where we landed on that was just kind of Googling what a serving size of any of these things is, um, because it's great if he eats one, one piece, one grape or one piece of bell pepper, but is it really functional? Is it going to change his life in any meaningful way? So we just kind of landed on, you know, a full serving size of whatever target we were working on. That makes sense. And then the sort of last thing you did before really setting up the actual sort of treatment evaluation is you did some preference assessments. Could you talk about that process and, and, and how you were looking at positive and negative reinforcers and, and, and potentially even why you wanted to look at the two different sort of classes of reinforcers? Um, so we did preference assessments both for positive and negative reinforcers. Um, we were interested to see whether or not there would be a difference in how quickly he um, met the targets um, under those two different conditions. So that's why we chose to do uh, both. But the preference assessment for uh, positive reinforcers was mostly edibles. We threw in a couple um, video game, you know, access to video games for a few minutes, things like that. And what we did was we did a, an MSWO was the first thing we did. So we we lined it up just like it says in, in the article and um, he just ate everything from left to right. <laughs> just, it would just gave us no information whatsoever. Um, but he was very pleased that he got to eat everything, all of his favorite things, just left to right. He just made no choice whatsoever. Um, so that really didn't give us the information we were looking for. So we pivoted to a paired choice um, assessment. 
And same thing, he had a, a left-hand side um, bias. So I had to put things on the same plate, top and bottom. <laughs> so that's what the, the preference assessment for positive reinforcers ended up looking like, was two items on a plate, top and bottom. And he actually took a moment and, and made a, a selection. Um, for the negative reinforcers, we did an MSWO, this guy's a reader, so we would just write the task that he had to complete on an index card, we spaced them out on the table, and because I wasn't 100% sure what he had had experience doing in the past, we exposed him to each of those things. So it was squats, push-ups, cleaning windows, cleaning tables, washing dishes, things like that. Um, and that ended up being very clear. He would he would look at all the the objects or the the cards and make a selection based on the thing that he wanted to do the most. So that one gave us pretty clear results immediately. With the selection bias in the MSW and then also the the pairwise, uh, our initial setup for the pairwise. How did you notice that it was like a selection bias? Like, what what did you attend to and go? Oh, like he's this is he's just picking the one that's on the left every single time. Was it was it just that obvious, or did you have was that recorded in your data? Like, how did you how did you pick that up? So the MSW was was completely obvious. I mean, he literally just took the the thing on the left. Um, the the paired choice assessment um, that I use is a data sheet that I got from Dr. Iwata. He came out. He came out to um, to consult at one of the agencies I was working at, and he gave us this packet of of data sheets and things like that. So um, it basically says A, B, B, C, whatever it is down the line. So as long as you line it up um, left and right, just like the data sheet says, it would show very clearly by the the, the time you're done that he's only picking the one on the left. So um, that's a pretty pretty solid indication that he's just not really selecting anything. Uh, and I don't want to go too far afield here and, and, and to sort of distract from the actual purpose of this paper, but I, I just love that your paper talked about, we tried this type of preference assessment, wasn't working, so we pivoted and we pivoted because that is such a, that is such a practical, realistic, realistic clinical experience, right? So uh, given that you were seeing sort of a side bias, what were your thoughts in terms of like why this would be a problem? Like if, if he's always selecting the one on the left, why not just, you know, take the data that you're getting anyway? Like why is, why is a side bias potentially an issue when looking at a preference assessment? So for him in particular, this really entrenched behavior of just not eating different foods, we knew we needed a strong reinforcer. We weren't going to make any headway with um, just something kind of lukewarm. So we really wanted to make sure that we had good information from him that make that makes sense yeah you know and just to add and cody you, you mentioned like you you, uh, you commented on just kind of like the progression of the changes that we had made um and, and that's exactly it right so like we we didn't go into this particular study as a research project um, it was purely a, a clinical problem that it presented itself that needed needed to be addressed um, and so as, as you go through this manuscript, you'll kind of see these decisions that we make based on the clinical need and how he responded. And we were just fortunate enough to be able to you know, pull the data together and submit it for publication in BAP. That's my kind of study. I, I love studies to sort of uh, look at that. So following the preference assessment, set up an arrangement, you get some ideas as to what are the sort of potent positive negative reinforcers. And then you wanted to ultimately evaluate the differential effectiveness of those, those different classes of reinforcers. How did you go about setting up the sort of design or the, the process of evaluating those? Like, how did you, how did you go about, you know, using one-on-one -on -one session or, or the other? Like, what did that look like? Um, so Dr. Kong's input was uh, was absolutely, you know, it was a huge piece of like why we chose this. Um, so um, sometimes we sit in research meetings and, and I say, yeah, I have this problem. And he goes, did you try this? And of course the answer is no. Um, but in any case, so this is kind of where we landed and, and he can fill you in on, on the, the research, um, you know, the, the reason that we chose that. But 
um, what we ended up doing was quick sessions. So it was like a five minute session in the morning, five minute session in the afternoon. Uh, it was relatively well-timed in the sense that he had had breakfast a long time before we sat for our morning session and he had lunch long before we sat for our afternoon session. Um, they really only took about five minutes a piece. So that was really nice. They, they fit nicely, really quick um, sessions into his day. Um, and what we did was like a random, a semi-random, I should say, uh, presentation of positive or negative. And so that was kind of on a calendar. Um, we would flip a coin, whatever it landed on was the session for the morning. And we did the opposite in the afternoon to try to keep them um, kind of on his toes, I guess, to not be predicting what we were going to do next. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, like as, as we were planning, you know, kind of like the sequence of the session, we wanted to make sure to, to minimize any disruption to his day because he, he, ha he has a job. Um, he needs to be at the job at a certain times and he's done you know, uh, with working at certain times. Uh, and so that was our goal was to, to really minimize any disruptions to his just day-to-day -day activities there. With the, with the arrangement of the sort of alternated uh, sessions, what research design were you using to sort of evaluate and compare the data uh, within that arrangement? So you know, we, it was a combined um, single case design. So uh, there, was the, there was the alternating treatments component, right, where we alternated between um, the, the DRA with the positive reinforcer and the DRA with the negative reinforcer. Uh, but then we also um, incorporated change of criterion design because we obviously wanted to increase the amount of, of, of new foods or novel foods that he'd been uh, eating, uh, but we, want, we wanted to do it in a very gradual way. That makes a, a lot of sense. With the initial targets and the changing criteria, where did you sort of begin and, and where did you sort of and like, you know, if, if we're going from like, you know, he's not eating anything, any of these foods to, you know, our sort of terminal goal, which is the serving size, where did those ranges fall? So we started at two pieces of each of the target foods. Um, and then when he met criteria for that, um, that amount of food, so it was three sessions at that, um, taking in two pieces of the food, then we would move up to four pieces six until we got to about 12, which was a serving. That makes sense. And as you're doing that, as you're, you're again, comparing it in an alternating treatments design, you've got a sort of an embedded changing criterion design where you're, you're incrementally increasing the requirements. What were you looking for in terms of a difference in the, the positive reinforcement versus the negative reinforcement? Like, and we'll talk about the actual results that you saw, but what were you looking for when you set that up? Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to make the comparison between the positive and negative reinforcement contingencies is to see if one resulted in, I guess, uh, acquisition or acceptance of the food quicker than the other, um, right? Because, you know, it could be the case that, you know, the, the aversive component and the negative reinforcement really led, um, would lead to like quicker acquisition or quick, quicker consumption. Uh, than the positive reinforcer. Um, and, and, and so obviously doing that alternating treatments design, comparing those two was, was the, one of the best ways to evaluate that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and sort of looking to see which one came to acquisition sooner. Now, we'll talk about, you know, what you actually saw in the moment. But before we do, let's, let's sort of break down what the actual procedures look like. So We've got different sessions for positive and negative reinforcement in the afternoon that are sort of counterbalanced. When the, when the, when the client is actually you know, sitting at the table or, or there to do a session, what did that look like? Um, so they were, he was sitting at the seat at the table with the person presenting the, the food to him across the table from him. Um, and so we would put the, the food down. The, the important thing was that, um, we presented a full serving each time and he could have eaten as much as he wanted. Um, and then we would make a statement, you don't have to eat any, you can eat as much as you want, but you need to eat this many to get this. So that was for both positive re and, and negative reinforcers. Um, the positive reinforcer was present, he could see it, he couldn't necessarily reach it unless he stood up or something like that. And um, the negative reinforcer was a card uh, that he was reading because we would have had to move to another location to, for him to complete the task that he would have had to do. 
so in the setup like positive reinforcement for example it would be like uh you know here are some grapes if you eat like am i understanding this right here's some grapes if you eat two grapes you can get the croissant or or whatever the positive reinforcer was and then it's sort of his choice from there exactly and so that was the the really important thing um like like sangu had mentioned um he's about 100 pounds bigger than i am <laughs> so for us to present him with a demand saying you know put our foot down like you have to do this wasn't really gonna work um, we wanted to respect his choice, and that was of the utmost importance, that it was his choice. He could have eaten the grapes, or he, he had other options at any point in time. He could have done something different. Yeah, that, that is a good point. I guess we didn't mention is that yeah, this was a DRA without extinction. Yeah. So he, he could still escape um, you know, the, the, the actual uh, task there. Yeah, and, and that makes sense given that he was adult and, and sort of given the, the context of the overall behavior that you're targeting. And you're sort of foreshadowing another piece that I want to talk about, we're really excited to talk about, which is the concurrent choice arrangement that you did. But, but before we get into that, uh, just real quickly, could you explain what baseline looked like? So we talked about like the different treatment sort of uh, procedures. What did the baseline procedures look like? Same location. So, you know, a table, a plate full of a bunch of food. It was at least a serving of whatever food we were targeting and just asked him like, go ahead, you want to have some of these? and he would eat them or not. And then, so you had your baseline, you had your treatment setups. Following your treatment evaluation, you arranged a concurrent choice uh, so that ultimately he could choose, indicate his preference between the positive and negative reinforcement. Can you talk about what that looked like, like how you set that up, and, and also why that was important or, or, or valid aspect of the study? Like, uh, why is that information helpful to have? So we, um, once we got to the ultimate criteria of what, eating or serving, we would bring him in that session that day wasn't selected as positive or negative, but we presented both. We had both the croissant and the card and said, hey, what do you want to work for today? And so he would select the positive reinforcers, just like I would um, sit down, run through the session, and he would get access to that positive reinforcer. Yeah, and I think you know, like, you know, one of the advantages of giving him that, that concurrent choice, obviously, is you know, just giving him agency in this whole process as well. Um, he's you know, again, you know, he's an adult uh, with autism, um, you know, very, very independent, uh, and so to give him a choice between you know, like these two different treatments, we thought was very, very important. Yeah, for sure, and uh, choice with, with all clients, but especially with adults, incredibly important piece to to include in there. Now, I think in terms of the procedures, the only thing we haven't talked about yet before we jump into the results and some of the take-home points here was that you ended up doing some uh, perhaps maintenance probe or generalization probes following. Could you talk about uh, what those look like and how you embedded them? So for the maintenance, what we did was just wait a month. We didn't talk about it. We didn't... Um, mentioned it, we didn't bring anything in um, to see what he would do. And we just waited, you know, 30 days, came back, um, presented him with his choice now. So we didn't go back and forth between them, but said, hey, um, go ahead, here's a bunch of grapes, um, go ahead and, um, you know, if you eat 12 of them, then you can get access to this thing. Uh, you don't have to eat any at all, but you can eat as many as you want. So he, he was able to maintain that over time um, without us making any, you know, additional, um, you know, sessions uh, available to him. And then for the generalization piece to, um, from bell peppers to salad, um, we were pretty excited to see, you know, I didn't think he was gonna eat it to be honest with you, but um, so we presented him with a whole salad. Um, we offered him some dressing that he might've liked, um, but he, he declined, so he ate it dry. Um, and, that was a session just the same as positive and negative. Um, here you go, have a salad. If you eat the whole thing, you can have this, or you can get out of doing that. Um, he was able to do that uh, with the whole, whole side salad. Um, and then we probed him eating salad at the dining hall, which is his place of employment, um, which is where he gets his meal um, you know, for his shift. And so he had access to the salad bar, which was really convenient for us. Um, we had him make his own salad this time. And um, 
he actually ate spring greens instead of what we had been giving him at the office, which was romaine lettuce. Um, so I was, I was really shocked to see him, you know, fill up a bowl of spring greens, shredded carrots, bell peppers, and then just eat it. Um, which was really, really exciting, <laughs> you know. But, um, it's awesome. The, his his stakeholders, his family must have been thrilled to hear that he did that. I mean, that's that's incredible. Lots of disbelief. I mean, I was like, I have it on video because I, was, I couldn't believe it myself as he was doing it. But it was really exciting to see him to and to enjoy it, too. Um, I think he really, you know, might have learned that new things aren't so horrible in this whole process. So that's awesome. Now we we sort of gotten a little bit of a heart of ourselves for talking about sort of some of the the, the results and, and the outcomes um, in the in the actual paper. You've got all the results laid out very beautifully in a graph, so it's super clear, easy to look at. So I recommend that the listeners download the paper, if 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 only just to look at the graphs, but obviously read the paper as well. Can we talk about? some of the sort of outcomes that, that you saw, some of the potential differences or lack of differences and the positive versus negative reinforcement and, and some of the, the, the big sort of take home points in, in the data that you saw here. So basically we, we didn't see a whole lot of difference um, with the grapes. I mean, he just kind of met, you know, he met our criteria basically uh, either under under either one of the conditions. Um, when we did get to bell peppers, um, he ended up just not eating them initially. Um, we had, I think maybe we had had a break or something like that. We came back and he just stopped eating them altogether. Um, so we redid our preference assessments, um, same as before, but identified something different for positive reinforcers and for the negative reinforcement we just doubled the magnitude. So instead of washing three dishes, it was, I asked him to wash six dishes. And so with that, he was able to meet those criteria again. But apart from that, he just basically met um, the number that we asked him to each time. And, you know, just to add, you know, as part of that change of criteria design, you know, like we never terminated the meal when he, you know, met that criteria. We always gave him the opportunity to exceed it, um, you know, to really stick to that change of criteria design. Uh, and, and he never did that, right? He was very good about kind of sticking to that criterion and saying he's done as soon as he reached that criterion, but, uh, which, is, which was great because that showed that, you know, he, that, um, that the intervention, as we're changing the criterion, that he's staying or sticking with that criterion there. Um, I think the other thing to uh, also mention is that you know, th these data were collected before the pandemic and all the shutdown and everything associated with that. Um, and so, you know, like, there was that gap in time where he, he wasn't really coming into the center uh, during when everything was shut down. Um, and so Whitney, I don't know, like if, if you had any like um, input from the parents as to like what he was eating and everything like that during that period as well. Yeah, so it's really, I'm really, really excited. Um, his, his mom has gotten back into her old habit of, of presenting him with new things um, because she had, I think, been punished by his behavior in the past and just hadn't, hadn't done it. So um, now she actually is letting me know that He's eating broccoli, he's eating celery. He's, so he's incorporated a couple new vegetables into his diet. He's trying new meats um, and, and even vocalizing that he's willing to try new things. So I had a conversation with him yesterday about different kinds of burgers. You know, he's bemoaning the fact that there's no burgers at, at the place where he works. Um, I said, you ever tried crab cakes? And he's like, you know what, you know, I haven't, I haven't, but I'll try and see if I like it. And so that's, that's been a, a big, um, change for him because before it was never had it never will um, but he's definitely eating different vegetables now at home um, asking for second helpings of broccoli which I never would have dreamt because um, I, I never would have thought to give him broccoli to be honest with you you know it's not my favorite but he's he's eating it regularly now that's awesome. I was going to say I think he's doing better than me I don't I don't eat celery I really don't I really don't love it uh, so he's, he's got one up on me in terms of, uh, the foods he's willing to eat. So, uh, I, I'm not going to let my wife listen to this episode of the podcast. Otherwise I'll be, <laughs> she'll be making me celery, um, uh, within the end of the year. So yeah, really, really meaningful outcome for this individual. Like that's super clear. And I think there are a few like interesting pieces of the data uh, that again, I don't want to like go too far afield, but sort of worth talking about, which is you'd mentioned 
that the reinforcers that were used with the grapes seemingly were not potent enough to, to be effective with the bell peppers, which again, not, you know, getting a little off track here, but I just find it, it sort of being an interesting example of the potency of reinforcer being relative or being affected by the task at hand, uh, which I found uh, very interesting. And, and looking at that data, is, is it a reasonable conclusion to then sort of uh, infer that he that bell peppers were likely more aversive than grapes were, right? They clearly they both weren't items he was willing to eat ahead of time, but in terms of even relative sort of aversiveness, it seems like maybe bell peppers were higher on that list given the data. Yeah, I, I would say definitely, yeah, right? So, if, you know, if, if we look, look at it from like a response effort perspective, um, it was much more effortful for him to consume a grape, which is, you know, sweet and it can be almost candy-like versus a vegetable, which, you know, isn't sweet. Um, and so, you know, I think by increasing that magnitude of reinforcement, yeah, that, yeah, we needed to increase that magnitude of reinforcement, whether it was the positive reinforcer or the negative reinforcer, in order to get him to start consuming, you know, the, the less desirable, you know, vegetables there. Yeah, and, and again, I think in your study, and again, we talked about this as being really, it was a clinical project, but again, a really important and, and effective pivot, right? Where, you know, you're doing your preference assessment, MSWO, that's not flying, right? So now we try and we're using, you know, these sort of preset criteria of, of these reinforcers, they're not, they're not working with bell peppers. Okay, what do we do? Let's increase the, the potency or the, the magnitude of the reinforcer and let's see if that shakes things up a little bit. And then you get similar results once you do that. Um, what were your like sort of take-home thoughts on the, aside from the choice piece, which we'll talk about in a second, but just like the similar outcomes with the positive negative reinforcer, had you, an, had you anticipated that or like, was that like, oh, it's kind of, it's kind of surprising that they both sort of ended up affecting the behavior in a similar way? I guess I was surprised. I kind of thought that we would make more headway with the negative reinforcer than we did with the positive. Um, but yeah, he responded very similarly across, across the two conditions. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with Whitney. I, I was surprised because I, I would have going into it, I would hypothesize that the negative reinforcer would be more effective especially when we started like introduced like the vegetables, right? The, you know, the, the non-sweet uh, food items, I would have imagined that the negative reinforcers would have, you know, at, at least at that magnitude would have increased um, his food con his consumption or acceptance, but obviously that didn't happen there. Yeah. I've got to say, as I was reading it, I was also a little surprised mostly because, and I'm not sure what, you know, the family had the opportunity to try as, is you know, he was growing up, but it seems like eating, you know, a small bout of any sort of new food, novel food, and then getting a little essentially treat afterwards seems like it's something that probably is a relatively common, like at home intervention of sorts. Um, but, you know, wasn't effective for him growing up. It doesn't sound like yet, you know, it was effective in the study. And I, I wonder if, it was the increments or, you know, you know, there's probably many components, but maybe one of the important components being the incremental increase, as opposed to like, Hey, you eat all, you gotta eat all these grapes and sure you get your percent. Had you started there, maybe not getting, you know, similar results or something like that. Yeah. I think that's, that's also very important, right? That gradual increase. Um, you know, like if we had gone from zero to a full serving or a cup of, you know, like the novel food and we, you know, we would, it would have been very unlikely that we would have been successful, um, even if we, you know, increase the magnitude of the reinforcer to, you know, like, um, like triple what it was originally there. Looking at the, the choice piece of, of this study, which uh, I'm a sucker for choice. I really love seeing sort of choice components in studies. And I had already sort of been really interested in enjoying this, the paper. And then I see the choice piece and I'm like, cool, this is uh, sort of, extra interesting to me now he selected the positive reinforcer like across the board right there there wasn't any sort of it was like 100 percent selection at positive reinforcer 
again, any sort of surprise there or thoughts on, on that particular selection? Um, I think it's really important because you could probably um, criticize us using croissants as, as a reinforcer to start with, to try to you know, expand his foods uh, repertoire. Um, but I think when you see that that we were able to use that and that was his that was his choice um it might suggest that you don't necessarily have to um, impose maybe the negative reinforcement contingencies ever um and that you know giving him that choice it, it helped him meet his goal so i think that um i think it's important to show that 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 was really him um speaking to us and saying no like this is really the my preferred method <laughs> of trying new foods um so that that kind of helps us to to support that yes sometimes we do have to use these less healthy items um to reinforce the behavior we're looking for but it's a meaningful change so so that's important and you know it, it could also be the case that you know, we use that change of criterion design right we were very you know, gradual in increasing the quantity uh, but it could be the case that at some point during that uh, fading uh, process, you know, the natural contingencies of reinforcement took over, right? You know, grapes actually started tasting good to him. Um, and so it could have been the case that um, he didn't really need the positive reinforcer by the time we gave, got to that choice. Um, and so that the, the, uh, the, the croissant just became a freebie because he, you know, the, the grapes in and of themselves became a reinforcer there. Um, so, you know, that, you know, that's something that, you know, that, you know, future studies could obviously do is, you know, kind of evaluate, you know, at what point, you know, the food becomes a reinforcer in, a, in, a, in and of itself. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting future direction. And for people looking for maybe dissertation or thesis topics out there, you just got a good one uh, if, you, if you want to pursue something like that. Yeah. And, and, and to your point about the the potential criticism that, you know, maybe a croissant isn't the healthiest, right? And the whole idea of this, this, you know, approaches to help increase healthy behaviors. I'm not a nutritionist, but to me, you know, being sort of ignorant on the topic, eating like cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets for every meal versus like a salad, which you help this client get to in a croissant. I, I don't know. I, I mean, to me, it, it seems like that probably is the healthier option. Again, I'm not claiming to be a nutritionist here, but that, that just from an ignorant standpoint, that seems pretty healthy relatively uh, from my perspective. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to add to that, I think um, it, this this it, we, this wasn't necessarily done by our choice, but, you know, because the pandemic shut everything down and, you know, um, he was no longer coming to the community center, um, I think, you know, the, the treatment was just naturally changed anyways, right? Because so it's not like the parents are offering him uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Whitney, uh, like a croissant every time he tries something new, like he's just trying something new now without any, you know, additional reinforcers there. Um, and so I think, you know, that's, you know, obviously that's really important for like, you know, any tr treatments we do that we fade the components so that it becomes as naturalistic as possible. Yeah, and I think it, it, it um, I, I hadn't mentioned this right before the pandemic hit, um, he, had, he had been invited to a work uh, Christmas party so he got invited to this Christmas party. They didn't, he didn't bring any food for him. Um, and he had already been working on this and everybody there knows him and how he only eats these, you know, 10 things at work or whatever. Um, and so it allowed for that, that other natural reinforcer, which is, you know, praise and, and socializing people that you really like. And so he tried several different new things at that party. Um, and he just got, you know, they threw him a party. They were super excited for him. He didn't get a croissant or anything like that, but um, they they showed him how proud they were of him and how happy they were that he tried, um, he tried like a duck meatball um, and a veggie burger, which he was, you know, just staunchly against. It's just not, not something that should exist. Um, so he tried a bunch of foods and, and was able to kind of socialize and, and, you know, have that success with his coworkers and, and celebrate that. That's awesome. Uh, it definitely sounds like he's a much more adventurous eater now. Uh, so great success. I'm, I'm happy you were able to share it in the paper and come on the podcast to talk about it. I think we've talked a lot about most of the results. Are there, are there anything, any sort of considerations, thoughts related to this paper that we've missed? Anything like that, that, you know, looking at the data or looking at their approach, you're like, oh, this is sort of an interesting consideration for folks. You know, I think, you know, just one thing to point out is that, 
this, this is like a really wonderful opportunity um, our, for our field and particularly you know, for graduate students. Uh, like, you know, if people need a thesis or, or a dissertation, um, there are just, there's just so much of a need for uh, work like this with the adult population. Um, and so, you know, I, I've got to say, you know, it, it was a relatively straightforward, you know, again, driven purely by clinical need, um, but it's something that, you know, can be done on a, on a regular basis, really in any type of a setting. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. And I know looking at just the, the clients that I end up working with, my students end up working with, as you talked about at the beginning of the paper, it's an incredibly prevalent issue that individuals with autism and other folks end up experiencing, which is food selectivity and other feeding disorders. And I think the way that you laid out your approach, your considerations, and ultimately the interventions you use, I think are, are really doable and, and approachable in, in most clinical settings. And so I greatly appreciate the way that you laid out your paper. And again, I've talked about it, but even just your clinical problem solving, you know, try an MSWL, that's not flying. What can we do next? Right. I, I think that that is hopefully really, really helpful for clinicians. I think it's a good, good model of, of how to go about addressing those concerns when they arise. For people interested in this topic, we talked about like one potential future direction for research. Are there other potentially future directions people should be thinking about or resources that people should be aware of? Anything like that. So someone who's listening to the podcast going, oh my goodness, like this is a cool topic. I'm going to go read the paper. Anything else they should be thinking about? Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, it, we need more replication. Right, and we need like larger scale repl uh, replication. So, you know, this was a, a study of n equals one, um, which is great, and the outcome was fantastic. And you know, as Whitney has you know, also you know uh, added, uh, just like additional anecdotal information, his outcome is like wonderful. You know, so we're obviously like very very happy with where this particular participant is. Um, but then there's also probably lots and lots of other adults out there who are having similar problems that probably don't have access to you know like the high quality behavior analysis like at RCIS. That they still need this type of support. So, you know, I think it's really a matter of you know, getting more people to replicate you know, these types of results uh, or these findings um, with you know, whether it be our intervention or you know, similar interventions. Because, you know, like there's so much research with, not so much, but there's a lot of research with kids. Um, and we can simply you know, really transfer what we've learned with kids to adults with modifications. Yeah, that makes sense. As, as someone, again, someone who's done a lot of work in the adult arena, having studies, even just you know, basic replications of procedures done with ch children with, with adults is incredibly helpful, right? Especially when those studies, their replication, but they sort of lay out those, those nuances that you've got to think about with adults. And I think your paper, again, a great model of, of some of those considerations and how you do this in a, in a setting where it's, it's, it's like you said, it's the, you're working in a community-based program. It's not as if you've got, you know, every potential resource at your fingertips and you're in this, you know, highly structured, you know, clinical setting where, you know, you've got everything available. It's, you know, it's a community setting. I, I'm well aware that there are many, many uh, complications and, and sort of limitations in that type of setting, but nevertheless, being able to structure that in a way where you can have a tremendous impact on, on the quality of the life of the person you're working with. Well, I don't want to keep you any longer. It was, a, it was an absolute joy to, to talk with you and to read your paper. Uh, for those listening, we'll link to everything that we've been talking about in the show notes. And uh, again, I appreciate everyone's time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Cody. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you leave, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen to the episode. Also, find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. 
thanks to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. And thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs>